Break it down now. Okay, we are back and we are unpacking a brand new sermon series. Uh, the thought behind this was that we were going to approach how we see God and that if God is so distant you can't really wrap your head around him, we're looking for a way to kind of reframe that into realizing that if, if God is love, then God should be approachable. I'm still Ed. I'm still Jacob. I didn't forget the intro. This was just far more in uh, front of my head. I was like, <laughs> wait a minute. Are we going to have to do this over? I don't how, think so. Maybe. How is everybody doing today? Good, 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 good. <laughs> All right. So in the, the title sequence, we had a series called God's Omnipotent. Presence and yeah. the first thing I noticed about that. Sorry, no, the series title is oh, the Heart of God. Heart of God. Sorry, series. The sermon. The the series is Heart of God. We started with the sermon on God's omnipresence. The reason I'm falling all over myself is because I was kind of floored, because this is the first time I heard somebody in a formal setting refer to God as omnipresent first and not omnipotent. Which maybe we're splitting hairs, and I know that you know. God is both, but the, the idea that God is everywhere instead of just over your shoulder, lurking and waiting, right. judging everything, that picture for me, like, so totally wrapped around, like, what I yeah what I prefer to see God as. I mean, I realize there's stuff we all kind of have to answer for, whatever, but just the idea that, like, no, God is in front of you, behind you, around you, inside you, with you, is supportive instead of God is waiting for you to step wrong, screw up. So we can swoop to destroy you. Yeah, exactly. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, so, where God seems more like one of the angry characters from the Star Wars series. Sure. I, I thought you did the Bowser laugh, and I was like, oh, that yeah. also works, right? Like, <laughs> That's kind of my my Bowser bad guy yeah. anytime. Dark Absolutely. Vader it's the, uh, the N64 Super Mario World. Every time you died, he would laugh and close right. the screen. Like, yes. not that guy. Not that one. Not that one. I'm looking up the uh, the, Cal- the the Celtic prayer. Well, one of them. There's quite a few. Oh, it's St. Patrick's. That's where it is. Because that's that's kind of, well, that's the way that I see God a lot of times. Is St. Patrick's breastplate prayer. Christ be with me. Christ within me. Christ behind me. Christ before me. Christ beside me. Christ to win me. Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ in quiet. Christ in danger. Christ in hearts of all that love me. Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. So yeah, just kind of that intentional reminder. And that's just one portion of that that St. Patrick's breastplate prayer. Um, but there's so much to that when we start thinking about God's presence. Because I struggle with the angry God mentality. And there's even an old sermon from called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, <laughs> I guess I shouldn't laugh, but yeah, like that that really packed him in. People yeah. lined up around the block. To... Well, it's a Jonathan Edwards uh, sermon back from uh, I think 1700s, and uh, yeah, I mean there there is this point where when things have gone wrong or things are hard, it's almost comforting for some people to hear that God is mad, because then they know God is still in control. Like, then there's less fear about what's going on. And that's, uh, you know, God's presence to me is much more comforting than God's power. Not that God is un- is not powerful, but to me, knowing that God is with me in the midst of difficulties is something that brings me comfort. But knowing that I'm not alone, because I've, I've got some issues with 
never really anchoring in one place mm. in my life. I don't, I think the longest I've ever lived in one location was four years in my entire life. So if you count that up, that's like eight different homes, except that it's more than that because some of those were two years at a time or one year at a time. So knowing that God is with me when you feel alone, knowing that God is with me when uh, when there's a lot of people around, and that's one of the weirdest sensations of loneliness is when there's, you know, you're in a crowd of 100 people or more, and you realize that you still feel lonely. Yeah. You still miss that connection. So uh, to know that in those moments that God is still there too was really helpful for me. It's so fun. Like funny might not be the right word, but I reflect on that a little bit. Um, I think I've had four homes my entire life. It's just funny how like we're, we're how much we have similarities and then these random differences of like mm-hmm. we're from the other end. And it's this, but it's funny how that works in the sense that there's this kind of universal attribute of God where same, you know, <laughs> like same, but like coming from a completely different experience, we all kind of find that same comfort or yeah, this perception that, Oh, God's still here. Like, yeah. One of the things they used to talk about in confirmation is when people get to a, a space where they feel like they don't feel God or, Oh, I don't feel Jesus talking to me anymore. And I would always say, well, that's cause you moved. God doesn't go anywhere. God is everywhere. So if you can't hear him, think about where you were, like how far away did you walk from wherever your strength was? And it was for 13 year olds, this idea that like more for the, the idea of, of, I never want them to feel like there's a point where they can be separated. Mm, okay. You know, like that idea, not you've wallowed into the, you've wandered into the valley of sin and now you're in real trouble. It's the idea that right. God's always there. No matter what happened, yeah. you, you can't be disconnected from God unless you're in that distress of like, you're not yeah. looking then because. Yeah, there's, I mean, that's, that's the thing. There are definitely things that we can do or refuse to do that will draw us away from God. So yeah, I agree. There's, I mean, that, that happens, you know, if we discontinue our prayer life, if we change around our habits enough that we're not spending time in study or we're not, the thing is we all do that. You know, one of the things that I've noticed that pastors do this too. We get into this, I call them dry spells, but places where we walk the desert. And some of the stuff that makes me feel a little better is that Jesus wandered the desert too. So did most of your great spiritual leaders. And I think there's that's because there's this sense of God is with us no matter what, but that doesn't mean God is going to hold our hand and tell us we're okay and pat us on the shoulder just because we want it. Because, and this was one of those things when I was learning to be a spiritual director that uh, they pointed out that if we do everything right to set up a moment to be able to hear God, we still have no power over God to make God speak. That's great. But that doesn't mean that God isn't there. You know, and so, and that's, to me, that's like what we hope to do with worship is to create these spaces for us to be in God's presence. But there's no, I mean, it's not like we couldn't do the same thing sitting outside by a creek or a crick, um, as some people call them. Hmm. Either one, it's about kind of open, it's about opening and being aware. And that's just something that, uh, that is hard for us to do. I used to think that there had, that it had to be. You know, there's only specific places you could have these big, quote, mountaintop experiences, right? Have you ever heard that? Oh, yeah. Like, I was thinking about that specifically on the mountaintop or in the nature retreat or the, you have to go so far away, your phone doesn't get reception so that. Yeah. Well, and that comes from a couple different places, right? I mean, Elijah goes up onto the mountain and then God says, and God says he's going to appear or an angel tells that God is going to speak to him. And then nothing, then a, 
Earthquake happens, God's not in the earthquake. Firestorm happens, God's not in the fire. Uh, to me, a tornado blows through, God's not in the tornado. And then God comes in the sound of nothing. Still small voices in other ways put it, but I, to me, the passage is most excellently interpreted to the sound of nothing, which to me really points that so often we need silence um, to truly be able to hear what God might have to say to us. Uh, mental silence, <laughs> literal silence, right? But then, you know, Jesus took James and John up onto the, and Peter up onto the mountain, and that's where uh, they witnessed the Holy Trinity for the first time, and, and they saw some amazing things on the mountain. So mountains have always been a, uh, Moses as well, receiving yeah. the tablets on the top of Mount Sinai, Horeb, not Mount Sinai. Um, so you have a bunch of those different spaces, but being open to them, a lot of times the places that we experience those holy moments now have been thought through very well to get us to be pondering something important, to invite us into a space where we're thinking about God or we're thinking about some aspect of our life that we need God to speak to. Or we're, we're openly approaching parts of weakness in ourselves, like t thinking about our own pain, our own suffering. And a lot of times in our vulnerability, we realize we cannot be the most strong or we cannot be the only expert because we don't have it figured out. And in those spaces where we connect, where we open this space, where we begin to listen, where we calm our hearts and our minds, and then we begin to sing the songs that evoke moments of remembering God's power. I mean, to me, a lot of the worship experiences where I have truly felt God's presence have been some semblance of that, where it's about, oh, yeah, God is here, even in uh, even my difficulty, even my storm. Holy Spirit by Francesca Botticelli is like one of my favorites. And it's just, she based, the most of the song is, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Um, and that, that phrase gets repeated multiple times. But I've also found that like creating that for myself is really hard. And so that, you know, Jesus says whenever two or more are gathered, so there's something really remarkable about the work that can be done with two or three people together. And so things like a contemplative service and worship, which we don't always stop to think or listen. And sometimes that's made harder by what's going on in our own lives. You know, if we're truly worried about an argument we have with our spouse or maybe we heard that our job isn't going well or we just can't get over the fact that we have to go grocery shopping and there's things that are going through our, you know some of them are very mundane reasons yeah a lot of it boils down to it. so then do we want to approach god i think is is that one and that's why mm -hmm. you know this this week if you haven't listened to that sermon it's up already on the firstumcwaverly.org slash worship and we just kind of dig into then who is god first john tells us god is love Mm -hmm. Jesus tells us that the things we need to the, the the most important commandments to God are to love one another and to love God. I did those in reverse order. But yeah, we're coming to this time of Lent, which is typically a time of renewal. Mm -hmm. Although, depending on which tradition you do, some of them it's about um, it's it's about living a life of an ascetic. You know, it's no good food, no good times, no you know, uh, fasting, and you know, gnashing of teeth and whatnot. All right. Um, yeah, before we started recording, like, Lent's the time for you to wallow in sorrow and feel bad about yourself. Until Easter, then you can smile again. But 40 days of feeling bad. I've had friends who, um, as part of their, their Lenten journey, they literally buried the word hallelujah. Like, dug a hole huh. and put the word hallelujah in a hole because you're not supposed to celebrate. But this is like... Like, older church history, this is a thing. Like, people, you were not supposed to sing the songs of the Hallelujah. And, and I just refused. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
not not because that the season is bad to do that. It's not because it's bad to not be celebrating the good things, but because at what point if in your life that if you feel that you should be celebrating God and singing hallelujah, that you shouldn't do that just because someone else is repenting. Right, yeah. Um, that ties in nicely. You had talked about, in the sermon you had kind of gotten into who is God, the examples of kind of what we have perceived to be moments of angry God, but if you actually look at the scriptural text, and not with a lens of, you know, much, much training, but just read it and read what they're actually saying. Like, for example, you had mentioned Eve and Adam partake of the the, fruit, the tree of the, the knowledge of good, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good, of good and evil. Yes, which is lengthy, but in that and um, yeah, the story of Cain and Abel, they do these things and they're bad, and we always remember they sin, and then God came. And the thing people don't realize is uh, when God comes, He says, "Where are you?" Not come forth and receive your punishment for my vengeance is mighty. It's this kind of, and I've always kind of interpreted that as this was like maybe like a parent to child relationship. Like, here's one last chance to come clean and we can square this. And instead, they were like, um, see, what had happened was, and there's right. excuses instead of just that simple open God kind of pointedly asking, like, here's. Here's your chance to repent, and yeah, we will yeah. be square. And instead, they made excuses to justify their behavior. And I think that part of it is so much more reassuring to read it in kind of that context as opposed to, and then God smited them with vengeance and made everything bad. Like, that's not what I remember, but I could be wrong. Once yeah. again, the Bowser laugh. <laughs> yeah, I, I just pulled open my stomach. I want to know which... In Genesis, that would be Genesis 3, wouldn't it? Yes. The fall. Which way, whether, where, whence, how, what. It's just a question word. Mm -hmm. So how are you? (laughs) I I mean, using the exact word, it could be, which is ahi, or I, where, how, what, whether. It's just, it's a question word, which when there's that many different interpretations of one Hebrew word, I think that that's pretty accurate to say that, that this is the big, like, to me also I want to throw in the word why. Why are you yeah. like this? Where, where have you been? Why are you hiding? Uh-huh. Uh, what is your, where is your mental state? Where is your, you know, why, right. what, has, what have you done um, that has brought you to that space? That's interesting and not in the deceptive, passive-aggressive interpretation of interesting, but genuinely interesting because it's, when you said that, it just hit me in the head, like, at Christmas time, this is our wonderful counselor, but then at Easter, it's like, don't do anything wrong. Like, same guy, folks. Like, this is the counseling part, right? This is the yeah. caring, loving God who's reaching out to be like, what happened where you got in this place? Like, how do we get out of it? Which we're all about at Christmas, but then at Easter, it becomes the story of angry, wrathful, short-tempered, nearsighted God who is mad you screwed up. And I'm like, what? But that doesn't. But or then, Lent. I don't know if we call that. Yeah, or Lent. Yeah, the, but yeah. yeah, and then getting to the yeah. So it's just super interesting to crack that open and look at kind of the root of the word is very approachable and consoling and full of love and care on a story that we just assumes like and this is why we're all suffering. So yeah. Well, I mean, the, there's a lot of history behind that. I think a lot of it comes down to. Yeah, I've had people say, well, there's plenty of places where God seems really angry in the Old Testament. And I said, I understand that in our current context, how you could take it that way. What if you were a part of a tribal nation that was constantly being under, uh, being attacked over and over? 
And when we think nation, we think countries. But what if you're thinking about you and 400 of your closest friends, and that was it? To where you could be wiped off the map by a group of people that was 800 people. Now all of a sudden, God telling you to defeat your enemies to a person instead of trying to subsume them doesn't seem the same. And that's hard for us to get because we, we're looking at scriptures. I was just talking to someone this morning about this. We're looking at some of these writings that are two to 4,000 years old. And anywhere else where we would take a look at a writing that was that old, we would be sitting in a history class with someone with a PhD or multiple PhDs explaining to us the total context. And so when you take scripture and you take the story in the life of the Hebrews out of context, then yeah, it can seem really violent. But you're not talking about people shooting guns at each other. You're talking about people with slings, David, and, you know, armor that's so heavy when you put it on, you can't move. I mean, it's not, it's not even medieval strength here, people. It's just a different... So, so you see that, you put it in a context, and you get closer to the first century, and it makes more sense, because at least the first century Rome may have been fairly violent still. I just don't think we... I don't think we realize how violent our culture is as well. We just do it in different ways. Totally. I heard a, a response to the same question about the violence of the Old Testament and the barbaric nature of this. And the, the way they had put it was, I can't even read the Old Testament because of all these horrible animal sacrifices and barbaric violence. I'm just going to go grill a burger and watch a football game instead. <laughs> right. What? <laughs> yeah, we battle in many different ways. Yeah. Now. But I mean, you know, there's just such a disconnect between the real world and the first century world and the world that we live in day to day and it's not that they're really any different it's that we perceive them to be different absolutely um yeah and there's a thing i heard about something to the effect that when we look at these other around this time period in first century you've got some like heavy greek philosophy that that We've incorporated across a lot of facets of our society, mm-hmm. and they found like maybe two or three texts of theirs, and the, that's the definitive compilation of Aristotle or Plato. Right. And then, conversely, early Christians, there were thousands of like it was a very literate movement. So there isn't there are three books on God. There's the three hundred that we found, and then we're pretty sure there's two hundred more we didn't find, and then right. there were six thousand written about those three hundred. Like there's so much writing as opposed to you know yeah, other think, ways so it gets kind of yeah like when i was in seminary uh, the, the count i think we had at that point for papyrus written of the gospel of mark was it like 44 so 44 texts that were the gospel of mark um <laughs> you know to think about like that was 2000 years ago yeah. and uh, 44 of them were found and then we have i think one account of alexander the great that was written 500 years after his death and as close as we can figure, the Gospel of Mark was written less than 100 years after Jesus died. So it was not only a more prolific rewriting over and over, but that it, there were more of them. It was sooner than Alexander the Great, but we don't question Alexander the Great's right. viability as a, as a historical. But pe- some people do question the early days of the Gospel. So Yeah, it's, it's fun. But uh, coming out of that, though, we kind of... Look at this idea. Like you said, we we want to get away from the idea of the angry judging God into the loving, accepting God and this time of renewal in Lent. I think it's an interesting point as we're in Lent season, the fact that practicing Methodist my entire life, when I found out that the Methodist church was not always about Ash Wednesday. Mm. 
and from my understanding of it, and I'll get your perk here, is that because in the original like Wesleyan ideology, there was a call for fasting on a regular basis as opposed right. to this set-aside season of suffer during this so you can appreciate it. And I thought that that might have been a little bit of what to do with it. But, the, the, you know, one of the means of grace was to fast regularly so that you can yeah, Wesley, sympathize with the poor. Every, I think every Wednesday, John mm-hmm. Wesley didn't eat until 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, to be a part of that fast. Now we call it intermittent fasting. Uh, right, either. and now he's, he's a health conscious. To, right? <laughs> well, it turns out that's actually really good for your metabolism to one day a week not eat. 20 hours in a row it's actually really interesting how Wesley stumbled upon some pretty interesting uh, physical trends that are, are very true and real yeah you know I haven't I haven't looked up what Wesley said or did about Ash Wednesday lately well I don't know if I ever have I've read, read a lot about Wesley but whole yeah I mean it's that intent that if you are consistently fasting consistently see, reaching out to God to say you're going to set aside only one day for that seems a little counterintuitive if you're making it happen every week. Right. Where I don't think our society does that as much. Because that same John Wesley mentality came from the fact that people went to church or went to a prayer meeting three or four or five times a week and then went to church on Sunday. Or went to, actually back then it wasn't necessarily church. You would go to a preaching house, a Methodist preaching house um, in the as the American West was being settled. Yeah, and so you would go to your prayer group and you go to your small group you go to your uh, Sunday school class except it wouldn't be called Sunday school because it'd be whatever day it was but when Wesley was specifically in Georgia he had a daily prayer meeting and if you didn't go to the prayer meeting he wouldn't serve you communion on Sunday <laughs> do you imagine how that would fly in 2020 <laughs> there'd be no one at that communion no, service no. <laughs> they would just stop coming because they already knew like. well, you know, there, there'd be a few who are like yes I do want to get up that well because John Wesley was up at three I mean, so he was he was up early enough that his farmers could get there, but goodness. And there are still, I mean, there are still traditions that do that. Uh, a lot of Catholic churches hold a daily mass. But then you're talking about a thousand people go to that church, and I guarantee you there's not a thousand people at that mass every day. No, but collectively, if you got your routine right, you're a, tu- you're a Tuesday and Sunday guy, or uh... yeah, my I mean, my stepmom goes to I think she goes to mass multiple days throughout the week, and that's I think it's just wonderful that that works for her. Cool. Um... So as we're looking ahead for this series and our upcoming run of podcasts, how, I guess, would you put this in a frame for someone who maybe isn't regularly versed at our church or a church or someone from another tradition who happened to come across us rambling right now? <laughs> right. And like if you, could, if you could nutshell the idea behind this sermon series for someone yeah, we as wanna... an invitation. Yeah, so during, I mean, during Lent, because I see this as a time of renewal and not just repentance, like there's this spot, there's this reality that we do need to turn, we we do need to pay attention to the things we're doing that are bad and wrong and unhelpful and hurtful in our lives. And addressing those not only, I mean, it's not a matter just of setting down our guilt or our shame. It's also about like when when we embrace the new life that's offered in that, there's a lot of habits that we pick up day to day that don't by themselves seem like they're a problem until we realize how unhealthy we're getting mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. And so this is one of those times that remind us to do that, to focus again upon our, our health and our spirit. Now this series is called The Heart of God because we're looking at ways in which we can understand who God is. So this isn't just a kind of a general like, what I do wrong this week, I hope I said sorry in time, but rather it is understanding why 
What's, why do we care about repentance? Why do we care about turning away from this? And what does God care about? Because if we've, if we've already turned away from what's bad, how do we embrace what's good? And then there's, there's comfort in knowing that, that God wept and that God had great sorrows. And what those are help us to understand where God's, where God, what God cares about, and both with us personally, but also with the world. And like where our lives can be made an impact on the things that God specifically was pointing us towards. You know, and then there's there's also a fun one. I had God's joy in there. There's some great passages about uh, God being joyful. And so we're going to look at some of those um, throughout this time. Partly because I really want to understand and seek after God's heart. And I think that by doing that, my original fear when I first started studying the Bible is I was going to find out how many more things I was doing wrong. And don't get me wrong, you can read through that list. I mean, you can, it's, Jesus told people to stop doing stuff throughout the Old Testament. Don't do these things, they're bad. But when we understand God's heart, we know what's, there's some great joy and love that we can be a part of in transforming the world. And I've, I've never embraced an aspect of uh, God's heart and not found of my life better for it. If it's, if it's being compassionate, I've never, I've never had God call me to be compassionate towards someone and then found myself meaner than I was before. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've never, I never got into this space where I hated my life because I walked away from that addiction or I stepped back from that toxic relationship or when we embrace God, when we know who God is, when we learn over and over, our lives aren't necessarily simplified because we do find out there are things we should change, but our lives are made better. We are made more peaceful, more content inside, which doesn't always mean easy. Content does not mean that our life is simple before us. But then again, nowhere did God promise to make our lives easier. He promised to redeem us and to be there with us no matter what. And so that's what we're looking at. Right. Um, one thing to touch on while you're talking in this idea of repentance, which people may be familiar with, but is still kind of a churchy word. Yeah. Um, so this, we said, season of repentance, some people take that very much. That's a good point. As this thing. So if you got to say, like, walk me through a real simple what is repentance? How does it work? Yeah. Okay. So repentance essentially means to turn around. So it's not quite as I used to think of it as like the uh, the guys uh, in Monty Python, the Quest of the Holy Grail, with the tablets. They're smashing their head. They were saying a prayer and then beating themselves in the face with those tablets. I can almost remember the prayer, but I'm not gonna say it out loud right now. Mostly because I mumble half of it anyway. But anyway, it's this idea that we turn away from the broken spaces towards God. So it's less like, have you done enough good now to balance out your bad, which is really hard to figure, because the first thing you got to wallow in your bad to figure out how much you've done. It's about like returning back to the path towards God. That's repentance. It's not, and I, we knew we needed to come up with another word for it, just so it's a little less old church, you know, hammer coming down kind of feeling to it. This is why words like renewal, you know, we, we want to be, we want to draw away, turn away from the things that hurt us and hurt our relationships with people and with God. And then we want to draw nearer to the, to taking care of ourselves and to taking care of our relationships with, with other people and with God. That in a nutshell is what repentance is. It doesn't sound so scary when we put it that way. It also doesn't sound super churchy. Not that churchy is bad, but we can lose sight of the true intense intent behind it. Oh, absolutely. Um, so thank you. Yeah, well, this has been great. I'm still kind of awash in the glow of doing that and then hearing the sermon and 
plugging parts of me into it as we're talking about it, I'm just going back there in my head to be like, oh, this is good. I did want to let everyone know that, and to recap, that sermon is available on the website. If you go to firstumcwaverly.org, you can find it. Also, through Lent, we have some more messages from our Wednesday evening services that will be available there that are going to be of a little bit different styles. Um, so that each thing, one will have a message, so right. not all those will be on there. Like, this well, week is about... Well, then again, this week we might not have anything. Uh, it, it's difficult, if you all are listening, to uh, to record an entire service because um, you, we go through YouTube, and right now YouTube has bots that mute out songs. So our service would be really muty, even though we have the license for that. To I, I opposed a, a YouTube muting of our service once and still have not heard back, and that was uh, April of last year. So... It takes too long <laughs> to figure that out. So, uh, but but the the narrative that I did for Ash Wednesday is on there about God's heart, and I'd really recommend you checking that out. I can say it; it was great. If you say it, you might be bragging. We can't do that because we're in Nebraska. But I can say it; it was fantastic. <laughs> Go see it. And as things like that pop up, he had mentioned that because of the stylistic differences in some of those services, there may not be a meditation right. part, but when they are available, they'll be on there. And it's just something different, but they're good. So you can get lots and lots and lots of church yeah. points. Rack them up. This is your <laughs> church points. Church points. Uh. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Why don't we ever come up with a loyalty card for a church going? We had them for literally everything else in our life. I don't know. What would we offer? <laughs> I don't know. Eternal life? That is the one tragic flaw in our business model that we, if we want to call it a product, we do give it away for free up front and they ask <laughs> you to come back on the back end. But, right. you know. All right. Well, uh, I think that's it for today. Uh, you all have a wonderful week. Enjoy your Lent. And uh, we hope you get, a, get some chances to draw near to God this week. So, all right. Have a good day. God bless.